Please to the second chapter of Romans, Romans 2. Paul's uh, purpose in these opening chapters of Romans, the first two and a half chapters of the book, uh, is to deliver us from this uh, illogical uh, faith that we have in the goodness of man. Somehow we we cling to that idea, even though we know it's irrational. We like to know we're okay, but uh, Paul tells us we're we're not. We're not okay. There are all sorts of things wrong with us. And if we think we're doing well, that we're living in a fool's paradise. As a matter of fact, he says, we are the complete fool. God uh, is expressing his love to us through creation. Everywhere you look, God is saying something to us through the natural world. As C.S. Lewis says, every bush is a burning bush. Uh, Every tree, every star, every phase, every aspect of nature and creation speaks to us about God. He reaches out to us uh, in this way. But we shut our ears to the music of the spheres, as, as the hymn writer puts it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want God intruding into our space. We, we don't want him around. And, and because we don't want God, because we take leave of him, Paul says, we begin to take leave of our senses. We begin to do very, very foolish things. Because we worship nature, we become very unnatural. Because we worship man, we become very, very unmanly. Terrible things begin to happen to us. We degrade and deteriorate as, uh, as men and women. We become immodest and immoral. And uh, we will believe in anything. Someone has said, if you don't believe in God, you'll believe in anything. And uh, that's, a, that's a truism. Marilyn Monroe was asked once about her religious beliefs, and she said, I believe in everything a little. And uh, that's what happens to us. Uh, we, we jettison a faith in God. We, we, we don't love him. We don't want to respond to his love, and so we'll love anything, and we'll love everybody. We become very undiscerning, and, and we deteriorate uh, as people. We think it's noble. Uh, I am the captain of my fate. We, we think that's, that's ennobling, but it isn't. It's debasing. And when we debase God, as Paul puts it so clearly in chapter 1, the net result is that we debase ourselves. Now, Paul is continuing this argument uh, in chapter 2. He wants us to see ourselves as as he sees us. Let's begin reading with verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment uh, against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward uh, repentance. Now, I should explain first Paul's method uh, in, uh, in the book of Romans, because he, unless we understand what Paul is doing, we may miss the significance of it. He's using a method of disputation that in the Greek world was known as the diatribe. Now, uh, today in English, diatribe is a, a sort of harsh harangue. Uh, but in Paul's day, a diatribe was a method of, of learned discussion. 
an individual would take the place of his opponent. He would actually state the questions that would arise in the mind of someone that he's, that he's reasoning with, and he would state those objections and answer them. Uh, they weren't erecting straw men and tearing them down. They were trying to think through the objections, the counterarguments that the other person would raise, and then they would, they would anticipate those questions and answer them. That's why all the way through the book you hear Paul saying, uh, you will say, O oh man, and, and that sort of thing. He's simply anticipating questions that would be raised. That's what he's doing here. He's anticipating the question that an individual reader would raise to chapter 1. The, the you here, you, O oh man, is singular. He's thinking of one person sitting down, man or woman, reading chapter 1 and then saying, Oh, but wait a minute. I'm not like that. I'm not perverted. I don't read pornography. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm not into drugs. I'm not like that. And uh, they, would, they would excuse themselves, those salt-of-the-earth citizens who don't do the things that are described in, in chapter 1. That's what Paul is doing. He anticipates that answer, and he responds to it. And uh, he says some interesting things uh, in this paragraph. The first thing he says is that there are some ground rules. Life has its rules. You, you can't live life without rules. Uh, it's true of life. It's true of games. Uh, imagine, if you would, a football game where the quarterback takes the snap and arbitrarily decides that the goal line behind him is uh, his opponent's uh, goal, and he runs backward like Roy Regals did a year, years ago in, in, a, in a Rose Bowl game, and uh, he scores going backwards. I don't think the... Uh, the uh, uh, referees would let him get away with that. Certainly the other team would not. Or suppose a receiver takes a pass and runs up into the stands and, and out through the back entrance and around the other side, and, and he scores. Uh, that sort of thing isn't, uh, isn't done. Or you're playing racquetball, and you decide that you're going to award yourself two points for every one that your opponent receives. Uh, it louses up the game. You've you got to have rules. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, that was a long, long time ago, I, I ran hurdles. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I trip over the threshold coming in the front door now. But uh, I, I used to be a hurdler. And uh, on one particular race, I tripped over the next to last hurdle and uh, uh, got my feet all tangled up, lost my balance, lost my stride. I saw I was going to hit the last hurdle. And I was on the outside lane. There was a little concrete curb and a grassy strip there. So I just ran around the hurdle. I knew it all was lost anyway. Uh, and uh, actually, I won the race. I picked up a couple of strides by running around the hurdle. And uh, I won, but they didn't award me any medal. As a matter of fact, my uh, coach had some uh, rather harsh things to say to me, uh, you know, such as, who in the world do you think you are? Uh, it, it would do no good for me to explain to him, now, wait a minute, I've trained hard. Uh, I didn't fall to start. I ran in my lane. Uh, I, I made it over most of the hurdles, eight of them, without any problem. Uh, what difference does it make that I ran around one? Well, obviously, you know, the difference is it makes a difference. It matters. There are rules. You have to keep the rules or you mess up the game. That's true of life. There are rules. And uh, we call them rules of fair play. And you, you can't play the game of life without the rules. The second thing that Paul says, oh, I should tell you where that comes from in the text so you don't think I just made it up. 
in verse 2, he says, We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. Truth. That's Paul's word for standards or rules. The rules stand. The second thing Paul says is that we know the rules. We know. We know that God's judgment is based upon, uh, upon the truth. Uh, listen to yourself when you engage in arguments with others. We, we say, you should do so-and-so. Or we say, you ought to do so-and-so. Or someone breaks into line in front of us, and we say, that's not right. I was here first. Now, where did we get those? Th- where did we get that notion of ought or should or rightness? Uh, Paul will tell us later that it's inscribed on our hearts. We would say heads. It's in our heads. There's a yardstick there. There's a ruler. There's a standard that we operate uh, by, and we know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, anthropologists, sociologists, others uh, have noted that you can go into every. Uh, society, any tribe or culture, and you find rules. They, they may not always be the same as our rules. The amazing thing is that they more nearly cons- coincide than they, than they disagree. We find a lot of areas of coincidence. But uh, not, you know, we don't disagree much. For example, there are no cultures that I know anything about where cowardice is condoned or honored. Where, you know, if someone runs away in, in battle... He's rewarded for that. I mean, it's just somehow the idea that, that bravery and courage and fortitude is a good thing. Uh, virtue, various virtues and values seem to carry right across the board. Uh, if they don't, if you, know, if you see a tribe that, uh, that kills other people, they have a justification for it. Uh, it's all right to kill the folks downriver because they aren't human beings. They, you know, they, don't, they, they, don't, they aren't even people. They're animals. But you don't kill the man who lives next door to you in, in the next hut. See, there's this idea that it's wrong to take human life. Now, what Paul is saying is that no one has to tell us what the rules are. We know. Uh, nobody handed us a rule book uh, the day we were born. The doctor didn't stick that in your hand as you left the hospital. You just know. It is written on your heart. Uh, you know. That's what older uh, theologians described as the law of nature. When we talk about the law of nature today, we're usually thinking of physical laws, physics and chemistry and those sorts of things. But but uh, they were thinking of the law of human nature. We just know. Nobody has to tell us. We know what ought to be. So there are rules, Paul says. Uh, the judgment of God is according to truth. And we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Now, the third thing he says is that we don't keep the rules. That's the interesting thing. Uh, You, he says, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. As I told you the first week I taught through Romans, I've taught Romans uh, 10 or 12 times over the past 25 years. And I've always taught this particular section uh, of, of Romans uh, a little, little bit different, differently than I'd like to this morning. I've always interpreted that statement to me. Well, we don't really do what we tell others they shouldn't do, but we think wrong things. But that's not what Paul says. And in reading through it this past week, it dawned on me that, that Paul is just stating it baldly. Roper, he says, 
you do the very things that you tell other people not to do. Uh, and I can speak as a uh, certified card-carrying hypocrite that uh, it is so. We tell our children that patience is an admirable virtue. That's a manly trait. And we lose our temper. We lose our patience with them. See? Uh, we tell our kids they should not uh, exceed the speed limit. And we exceed the speed limit. Uh, Paul is absolutely right. He targets us. He nails us. We do the very things that we, that we tell others they should not do. So we are without excuse. My father used to tell me about uh, uh, a, uh, a man who told his son not to go to burlesque shows. I suppose if he lived today, he would say X-rated movies or R-rated movies. And uh, uh, he said to the boy, don't go to burlesque shows because you may see something that you shouldn't see. So uh, the boy... Uh, sneaked away one night. He went to a burlesque show, and he did indeed see something he shouldn't see. He saw his father. Uh, now, that's the sort of hypocrisy that we're all guilty of. And I, just face it honestly. We are hypocrites, all of us. We tell people what they ought not to do, and we turn right around, and we do it. Now, Why? That, that, that is the question. Why do we do it? How do we get away with it? How do we excuse it? Well, Paul tells us. Um, he, he says in verse uh, 3, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? We think it doesn't apply to us. It applies to everyone else. But it doesn't apply to us. The interesting thing is that when someone else tells us that we have violated the law, we generally will not question the law. We will explain why it is all right for us to violate it. Uh, if we uh, force our way into line and somebody says, hey, I was here first, you shouldn't do that, we say, well, I'm in a hurry. I have to get through. You see, we don't say it's perfectly all right to bug in line. That's okay. You can do that. And we don't say that. We explain why. Uh, here this past year, I was uh, uh, got pulled over by one of our police officers here in town. And uh, he sauntered up to my window and he said, uh, Sir, do you know what you did? And I said, uh, uh, Yeah, I'm afraid I do. I, that was an illegal turn. And he said, y You got it. You're right. He said, Why did you do that? Oh, he said, Didn't, didn't you see the sign? And I said, well, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I drive down this street almost every day on the way to work. I know the sign is there. But I was thinking about something else. You see what I'm saying? You know, mere mortals have to stop at that sign. But uh, <laughs> I had these lofty thoughts that I was thinking. And that was my excuse, see? Well, he wasn't really impressed by that. It didn't, he didn't buy that. I mean, I didn't get a ticket. He just gave me a reprimand. But I, you know, I needed that because I was not justified in, in breaking the law. Now, that's, that's one of the ways we get around the law. We think we're exceptions. We can think of all sorts of reasons why the law doesn't apply to us. The second reason that we, uh, that we do what we know is wrong is that we confuse the patience of God with the notion that he's indifferent to sin. 
That's what Paul is saying in verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? God is, is very patient. He does not judge. Uh, he does not immediately judge acts of sin. He waits. And sometimes we take that uh, patience as indifference to sin. We think of God as an old softy. He's like Santa Claus. You know, he's making a list, and he's, you know, he's trying to find out who's naughty and nice, but he probably is going to give presents to, to everybody in the end anyway. I always knew Santa Claus wouldn't, wouldn't uh, fail to bring me something, even though I'd been naughty. And you know, we think that about God. You know, his attitude is, well, boys will be boys, and one of these days we're gonna, he's going to grow up, and uh, these are just picadillos. You know, they're just small things. They don't really matter, see. But what we're doing is confusing the patience of God or the, uh, God's patience and, and thinking it's indifference. He doesn't care, but he does care. He does n- take note of these things that we do, and they do matter, see. And the reason God is waiting is because he's calling us. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He's calling us to himself. So the bottom line is that... Uh, that judgment is coming. Look, look at verses 5 through 11. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. I used to raise, uh, used to raise pigs. I was in the 4-H club when I was, uh, I was a kid. And uh, uh, I raised Duroc uh, hogs. And we used to put those hogs in a little bitty pen. And all they did was eat. They didn't go anywhere. They just ate. And they got bigger and bigger and bigger. They were, uh, the, the judgment day was coming. The more they ate, the, the, the sooner, the more inevitable was the judgment. That's what Paul is saying. He's just storing up wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, that is, they're devoted to themselves, and who reject the truth about God and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress. The word means they'll be hemmed in. There'll be frustration for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, because historically the Jews first heard the gospel and because they had greater responsibility because they had more light than the Gentiles, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. God doesn't play favorites. He plays fair. See? Uh, actually, verse 11 is a summation of everything that goes before. There are rules. We know there are rules. We don't obey the rules. And we face judgment. God doesn't play favorites, you see. Now, uh, verse 7 is an explanation of verse 6. And at first reading, it gives the impression that Paul teaches salvation by works. In other words, if you persist in doing uh, doing good, then God will take note of that and he will reward you for it. Well, that's true. That's exactly what Paul says. If you do good, he will reward you for it. But uh, let me tell you what I think Paul is saying. He is saying that the person who yearns for God, the person who longs 
to do what's right, who is pursuing God with, uh, with all of his might, will in the end find God, or really, to put it the way Paul puts it, God will find him. In other words, the inclination, God rewards the inclination of our heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all of your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with, him, with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heavenly. <coughs> Pardon me. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. And you understand what Paul is saying in this passage? And I think C.S. Lewis states it very well. He's saying that we're inclined one way or another in our life. Either we're inclined toward God or we're inclined away from him. And if we choose God and we long for him, then God will come and meet us. I think what he does is simply give us more truth. He will give us the knowledge of the Savior. And when we hear about the Savior, if our hearts are inclined to follow him, we will believe him. I have people say to me from time to time, I'm a seeker after truth. They hear the message about Jesus Christ and they reject it. I have to say, then you're not seeking truth. I want to say it kindly, but I want to say it forthrightly. You're not seeking truth. Because if you were, you would respond to the the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Paul is saying. If we are truly seekers after truth, if we long for good with all of our hearts, then God will give us more truth and more truth and more truth until we come to know his son, and then he will give us eternal life. But if we reject the truth that we have, we are being turned into this hellish creature that, that Paul describes. We may be able to cover it up, but inwardly we're, we're degrading, you see? Now, this for me is the explanation of what happens to the, the man or woman in, in some third world country where he's shut off totally from the gospel, uh, the, the black in the Australian outback. You know, what about this fellow? Well, my belief is that if he's responding to the truth that he has, God will give him more. He'll get one of us over there to proclaim the gospel to him. He will get him more truth. Now, what happens if he happens to be uh, killed in a, in a tribal war or something in the meantime? He doesn't hear the gospel. I believe when that man steps into the presence of God, our, our Lord will say to us, this is my son. And the man will say, oh, if I'd known it, I would have loved him. You see, God sees his heart. That's the point. God sees the heart. And he does what's right. And if a man is, or woman is, 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 is yearning for God, searching for God, God will get more truth to, it, to him. And, and see, that's where the, where the, that's the impulse for the missionary, uh, for, for fulfilling the missionary, missionary mandate, to get to that person with more truth. We're the method that God uses to, to get additional revelation to that individual so they can respond to it. 
Now, uh, Paul says that, uh, that for those who persist in doing good, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress. That's, a, that's an apt description of what happens to people that, that reject the truth. Life becomes more and more dull, more meaningless, more empty. Uh, the act, actor George Sanders, who committed suicide recently, uh, put in his suicide note, I'm leaving now because I'm bored. That's what happens. Boredom, deadness, emptiness sets in. And uh, uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the state that they find themselves in. Because, he says in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Now he goes on in verses 12 through 16 to talk about the universality of that judgment. All, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the law given to the Jews, when they do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel uh, declares. Now, what, what he's saying in that uh, paragraph is this, and, and it's all too clear. He, he, he states again that we know, we know the truth. And God judges us on the basis of the truth that we know. Uh, the Jews know more. The Jews were, were, that was the nation that God chose, through which he revealed, he gave his revelation to the Gentile world. The Jews were called to be a light to the nations. They were given the oracles of God. Paul puts it that way in Romans 9, spelling out the distinctives of the people of, uh, of God, Israel. And he says, to them were given the oracles of God. And they were a special people in the sense that they were given a written revelation of truth, which they were to pass on to the Gentile world. Now, they are held responsible for the written revelation. They have more responsibility, more light. That's why Paul says that the gospel is the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Uh, but Gentiles have a law, too. Even though they don't have the Torah, they don't have the law of Israel, they have a law written on their heart. And what Paul is saying is that God only holds us responsible for the truth we have. That's all. He doesn't judge us because of ignorance. And the way we know that we have this law is that our conscience tells us so. Our conscience nags us. And you know what it's like to have a nagging conscience, to feel guilty about something. We all have it. Uh, uh, men may get so, uh, so busy in their business uh, that they're, they're un, unwilling to fulfill their responsibilities as a father at home, but they can justify that on the basis uh, they're hard workers, they're providing for their family, and they can ease their conscience a little bit by, uh, by convincing themselves that they're doing this for the good of the family. So their conscience may not nag them about that, but inevitably there'll be something else that bothers them, something that bugs them, something way down, in de down deep inside that they can't get away from. 
Now, Paul is not saying let your conscience be your guide because conscience is not always a good indicator. It simply operates off the standard that we have, and the standard can sometimes be a little bit off. It's like a conscience. Someone has, has, has defined conscience as that, that still small voice that makes you feel still smaller. Uh, it, 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 you know, it registers off of our standard. It, it tells us that we fall short of the standard we have, not only the standard... Uh, of God, but the standard of our of our culture, the standard of our society, of our fraternity, uh, of our friends, of our family, the, the the values, the virtues we picked up from our family, our conscience keeps telling us we fall short. We fall short. Keeps nagging. It's like a little red light on our automobile dashboard that flips on when something is wrong inside. We know it, and it nags us, and bugs us, and bothers us. It's always there. And Paul says that same conscience that bothers us now is going to speak to us when we stand before God. God will not have to even say you're sinful. We will know it. He didn't have to say that to us now. We just know it. We know it. I've mentioned before uh, a segment in that satirical television program. This was the week that was. There's a very interesting segment at the end of, of one of their programs. David Frost, who is a Christian, was involved in this segment, and I think this was a little pre-evangelism. He was trying to say something to people that watched that program. At a little card table. Frost was sitting behind the card table, and behind him were two doors, one labeled hell and the other heaven. And uh, a man came to the card table and had his hat in his hand, and he says to Frost, which way do I go? And Frost said, you know. And the man said, oh, come on, tell me. Which way do I go? Frost said, you know. And uh, they went through two or three repetitions of that question and answer. Finally, the man crumpled up his hat, and he walked through the door to hell. We know. We know. That's what Paul means when he says, they show... That is, the Gentiles who don't have the law of Israel. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also, uh, also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. That's happening now. Our consciences nag us about our failure to live up to the standards that we have. And this will also take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Do you know God knows your secrets? He knows about the greed and the lust. He knows all of the garbage that's in our minds, that's in our past. We'd like to hide that. We'd like to cover that up. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They sinned. And God found them out, and they started covering up. And we've been covering up every, ever since. But they couldn't keep their secret from God. He found them out. And God knows my secrets and your secrets. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you did last night. And he still loves you. That's what Paul means when he says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you know that God sees you, then you don't have anything else to hide. You don't have to hide any longer. You can come out of the closet. You can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
One of these days we're going to stand before God and, and it's all going to come out anyway. He already knows it, but it, you know, it's, going to, it's, it's going to be made public then. The whole universe will know. Then it'll be too late. Now is the time to accept salvation. See, the Lord knows you. He knows your heart. He knows exactly what's there. And he doesn't overlook your sin or my sin. What he does is redeem us from the guilt of our sin. He buys us out and sets us free. Now, you see, the way you become a Christian is simply coming to the Lord and saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's just stripping off the fronts and the facades and the layers and exposing us for what we are because we have to see ourselves for what we are before we can receive salvation. That's why I say the bad news has to come first. You get the bad news, we're sinful, and then immediately you get the good news. See, the problem with preaching through Romans is that you, for about six Sundays you hear bad news. That's why I have to keep jumping ahead all the time, because I don't want you to go out just thinking about the bad news. The bad news is that we are desperately sinful. The situation is critical. It is cosmic. We do not have a leg to stand on. If, if God were to call us to judgment now and we've not received Jesus Christ, we would have no place to stand. The good news is that Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. All of our sins. Everything we've done, he paid for. Now, you remember the deal? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God... God's part of the contract is to give salvation. Our part of the contract is to receive it. It's up to you. Choice is ours. God does not force us. He will track us down. And his love is relentless, but he will not force us. The choice is ours. But once we make that choice to receive Christ, we are free from all of our guilt. We don't have to start behaving in order to impress him. We don't have to gussy ourselves up, have more spit and polish, clean ourselves up so God will accept us. He accepts us because he sees us in Christ Jesus. We have the righteousness of his son. That means you can open up your heart to God and he will not reject you. He can't reject you because he sees the imprint of his son on our life. That's what frees us from guilt, you see. When we first come to Christ, oh, it is so liberating to be freed from that guilt. And it's a daily experience for us as believers to remind ourselves that he has paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, future. Not only the sins we've done in the past, but everything we could possibly do in the future and will do is paid for. That's what it means to be saved by grace. It's not because we deserve it comes as a result of God's love. Now, this morning, we're going, to, we're going to celebrate around the Lord's table. Gather around this table and remember his death till he comes. That's the purpose of these elements. They're symbols, but they are symbols of a greater reality. Uh, the reality is the time, as someone said, I read this, this last week, when our Lord stretched out his hands upon that terrible tree, which was the death of God and the life of man. That's what he did for us. And let's remember his death as we, 
uh, worship around this table. Let's pray. Lord, you, you read us like an open book. You know all of the resentment, the bitterness, the anger, uh, the deceit, the lust. You know it all. We, we cannot hide from you. But the wonder of it all is that though you, you care about sin, you're not indifferent to it, to it. You care about us most of all. And you're willing to give up your own life in order to, to redeem us from that sin. Oh, we, we thank you, Lord, for that. We will be eternally grateful that you've done that for us. And now as we gather around this table, we ask that you would draw our hearts to you, that we would express to you through this, this simple ceremony the love that we have for you. And may we worship you with a thankful heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.